Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. Morning. Uh, my name's Andrew. I'm the student ministry director here at the Ridge, and I'm so glad to be worshiping with y'all this morning. Um, so you may have seen uh, over the past couple weeks there have been a couple new video game consoles released. Uh, the first one's the PlayStation Five, and then also the Xbox Series. X. If you're a big gamer, you've probably seen that for sure. Uh, if you're the parent of a teenager, you've almost certainly been asked, can I have this for Christmas, um, right? But here's the kicker. These were being sold exclusively online uh, and they were selling out like so crazy quick. Um, but for Black Friday, GameStop was gonna have a couple of each of these consoles uh, for sale in person on Black Friday, but only like two guaranteed of each. So not a whole lot. So as you can imagine, because it's Black Friday, there were some people that went to kind of some extreme lengths to try and get their hands on one of these consoles. So I wanna show you a couple pictures of people doing that. Uh, this first one, this guy Eugene Daniel tweeted, I just want somebody to love me like these guys love the PS5. They skipped Thanksgiving meal to camp outside of GameStop for 24 hours in Norfolk. They brought mattresses and bedding. They've been here since 6 a.m dedication. I mean, these guys are very dedicated, sleeping outside GameStop for a full day. They're waiting like crazy. Uh, the next one we got, um, one guy drove to 11 different GameStops. I mean, 11 GameStops just to make sure he got this. This guy, again, going to the extreme for these new consoles. And we got one more. Um, and this last one is, is a mother and a son and they're camping in their tent. I love that, like rain, shine, doesn't matter. We'll be good, we'll be dry. But they were there since Wednesday at 4 p.m. Wednesday at 4 p.m. I mean, these people were eagerly waiting for these new consoles and they took waiting to the extreme to make sure they got their hands on one. And if you saw any of the interviews of the people that actually got their hands on one of the consoles, I mean, they were just pumped that what they were waiting for finally came. Here's the thing though, I think we've all experienced seasons of waiting. We all experience different times in our life where we're waiting for something to come, we're waiting for something to end. Right now, my wife Delaney and I, we're waiting on a new baby. She's pregnant and we're expecting in March. So this is a huge season of waiting for us. Some of you could be waiting to graduate. You could be waiting for a new job or to sell your house or buy a new house. You could be waiting uh, to visit family. You could be waiting for all kinds of things. And we've all experienced different seasons of waiting. Right now, I think we're kind of all in a shared experience of waiting with this pandemic. I mean, I remember back in March when things were getting crazy and it was like, oh, just wait till the summer and it'll be over. And then it was summer and it was like, oh, in the summer, we'll wait till the fall and it'll be over. And it wasn't quite over in the fall. And, and I, I'm not gonna try and claim to know when it's over. Uh, that's for the doctors and, and all that. But what I am gonna do is I'm gonna celebrate like crazy when this thing is behind us and I can't wait uh, till that is the case. But we're all in this shared season of kind of prolonged waiting right now. You may not know this, uh, but last Sunday, 
actually mark the start of Advent. And Advent is a season of waiting. Uh, it's kind of a church season. And the whole point of the season is to wait and to prepare ourselves to celebrate the coming of Jesus and his first coming some 2,000 years ago. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what this season is all about. It's all about waiting on the coming of Jesus. And so that's why we're in this series called Christmas Portraits, even though it's not quite Christmas yet. We wanna take this time leading up to Christmas and we wanna look at the Christmas story, see what we can learn from it. And in particular, we're looking at a few different characters and how they respond to Jesus. And when we look at the books of Matthew and Luke, the two accounts of Jesus's birth of the Christmas story, we really see three main responses uh, to Jesus and his coming. Last week, Tim shared about Herod and kind of a hostile response toward Jesus' coming. Next week, Tim is gonna share about those who responded um, just joyfully welcoming the Savior. Um, and this week, today, I get to share a little bit about a third group, a group who wasn't quite hostile, um, but they didn't enthusiastically welcome Jesus either. This group of people is the religious leaders of that day, and they're somewhere in the middle. But before we look at them, I wanna set the stage for their response a little bit. I think doing this will help us understand why their response is such a big deal because I believe it really, really is. Um, so when we look through the first pages of the Bible, um, we see a couple awesome things. We see a world that God created and we see humans and animals um, and, and all these things. And God says it's very good. And we see Adam and Eve, his people, living in this harmonious, perfect relationship with God. But not too long after that, uh, there's this serpent that enters the picture and convinces Adam and Eve to turn away from God and to disobey him. And in doing so, sin enters the picture and brokenness enters the picture and their relationship with their creator is no longer perfect. It's broken and it's severed. And here's something really cool that God says kind of right after this story as it's happening. God is talking to the serpent. He's talking to the woman and the man together. And he says this in Genesis three, verse 15, God says, I will put hostility between you, the serpent and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, one of the woman's offspring will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So right after all this brokenness entered the picture, we see this verse, verse 15 in chapter three. And what smart theology people refer to this verse as, they call this the proto-evangelium, the proto-evangelium. And what that means in layman's terms, it just means first gospel or first good news. And what it is, is this verse is the first instance where God says that he's going to send someone from Adam and Eve's family um, to fix the problem that was just created, right? He says that I'm gonna send one of your offspring to crush the head of the serpent. He's promising that someone's gonna come and fix this problem. It's kind of the first instance where God does that. It's really cool. And as we read in the Old Testament, we follow Adam and Eve's story and we follow their family, which eventually turns into the nation of Israel, God continues to talk about this person who's gonna come from their family and save the world, this person who's gonna make all things right. And when he talks about this person, he often refers to them as, as the Messiah. And the Messiah simply means anointed one. And this is kind of a, a fun fact, a side note. Um, Jesus 
right? His, his full name isn't Jesus Christ. Christ isn't his last name. It's not jo- Joseph, Jesus, and Mary Christ. Christ is a title, and it's the same title as Messiah. They both mean anointed one. So really, Jesus is Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And so the whole idea here is that God is sending this anointed person to come and rescue humanity. So we're waiting on this person as we read the pages of the Old Testament. And some of these mentions of the Messiah are actually prophetic. And what that means is that God gave Israel markers or he gave them indicators to look at so that when these markers started popping up, when these indicators started happening, Israel would know, oh man, the person that these things are happening around or happening to or true of, that's God's Messiah. And I just wanna share a couple of these prophecies with you and they're all centered around um, the Messiah's coming. And there's a bunch more, but here's just a few I wanted to share with you. The first one, he would be a descendant of Abraham and Abraham is a great, great, great grandson of Adam and Eve. And so it's gonna be kind of in Abraham's family line that this Messiah is gonna come from. And then he's gonna be a descendant of King David, right? And so not only is he gonna be a part of David's family line, but David was the king of Israel. And so that means the Messiah is going to be of the kingly line. He's gonna be a king. Then we see he's gonna be, there'll be a star rising out of Jacob when the Messiah is coming. We see that as well. The Messiah is gonna be born of a virgin, which what a crazy thing to say is gonna happen one day. I mean, it's impossible. How is this gonna happen that he'll be born of a virgin? Another one will be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah will then be called out of Egypt. And then the Messiah is going to be from Nazareth. So these are just a few of the prophecies kind of centered around the Messiah's coming. And and some of them, it's like, man, how are these gonna happen? These are kind of crazy things to say that are gonna happen one day. Cool thing is they all do, and they all do with Jesus. We see all of these things happening with Jesus. It's, it's really remarkable. But all of this to say that Israel, and in particular the religious leaders, the group of people that were the keepers of the law in their day, they were the ones that they would have known the word of God, the Hebrew Bible, back and forth, inside and out. They would have known all of the prophecies. They would have known all these things very, very well. They'd have been very familiar. These people and Israel, they would have been waiting thousands of years, thousands of years for this Messiah to come. And they're just eagerly waiting for that thousands of years for someone to come and rescue humanity. All right, so now we've got the stage set. I wanna jump in um, to kind of our text today. And this is gonna be the same text that Tim shared last week but we're gonna be looking at kind of a different group of people. We're not gonna be looking at Herod. Um, so we got some interesting things to look at today. So uh, here we go. I want you to watch for how these religious leaders respond to the news of the coming Messiah. So Matthew chapter two, uh, verse one. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes, which are the religious leaders, those are the religious leaders of the people. And he asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, 
are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And that's it. That's the entire response from the religious leaders. That's all that was worth recording. I mean, the only thing that we have recorded as their response to Jesus is them actually confirming one of the prophecies. These magi come and say, hey, the king of the Jews has been born in Bethlehem. And Herod's like, hey, religious leaders, you guys know the prophecies. Is, is that where he's supposed to be born? And they're like, yes. And then that's it. That's all we hear. It, and here's the thing, it's not what they do that's surprising. We should expect them to be the ones that are like fact checking for the Messiah. It's what they don't do that's surprising. They don't interrogate the Magi any further. They don't travel to Bethlehem, which is just a couple miles down the road to check things out and to see if this Messiah, if this potential Messiah is actually him who's coming to save the world. They don't do anything. I mean, this is bizarre. It should cause us to pause and, and maybe raise our eyebrows at the lack of a response from these dudes. Like, like I just shared, I mean, they're the keepers of the law. They know the prophecies. They just proved that in the verses we read and they've been waiting thousands of years for this Messiah and they miss it. They miss him. I think when we step back and we, and we look at them and, and I think we can learn something from the fact that they missed it, from the fact that they missed Jesus coming into the world, they missed the Messiah. I think that we can learn that you can know the word of God and not know the God of the word. You can know the word of God and not know the God of the word. See, because God had been telling them to expect this for thousands of years. And when the Messiah finally comes, they are indifferent. There are only three verses devoted to these guys out of 168 verses in the genealogies of Jesus and the Christmas story. Only three. Their response was not even worth mentioning. I mean, that's bizarre. These are the guys that should be responding joyfully, should be welcomely, welcoming enthusiastically the Messiah. But they don't. Something that reading through this text the past couple of weeks has, has made me ask myself is that if these religious leaders didn't get it, if they missed the Messiah, maybe we have too. Maybe we have missed him too. I think their indifference toward Jesus coming should cause us to take a good look in the mirror. We should take a good look in the mirror at ourselves. And, and, and why? Well, there's, there's a time a couple chapters later in Matthew where Jesus shares something that is, is a pretty hard truth. Um, it's a pretty hard truth that he shares. But here's the thing is, if we think about it like this, um, if we think about doctors, and doctors have to share hard truths, difficult diagnoses all the time. And it's not fun, and I'm sure they don't enjoy it, and it's not what they'd want to be sharing. But the thing is, is that it's the loving thing to share those hard diagnoses. It's a loving thing to share those hard truths. It's a loving thing so that way you can know the problem and you can start to work toward fixing the problem. You can look for a solution. You won't look for a solution if you don't know the problem. And so in the same way, I think Jesus is lovingly sharing a hard truth that we need to hear so that we can see the solution, so we can be set on the right path. So here's what he says in Matthew chapter seven, verses 21 through 23. 
He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name. Drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. I mean, that is a hard truth. It's a hard thing to hear that Jesus is saying that there are some of us who will kind of go through life thinking we've got it right, thinking that we understand what Jesus is all about, thinking we know what Christianity is all about, and yet we will miss it. And here's the thing, that's a tough truth, but I think Jesus is exposing something here. I think he's revealing to us what Christianity is all about, what life is all about. I think he's trying to show us that Christianity, it isn't about uh, knowing the Bible. It isn't about doing the right things. It isn't even about going to church. And before you stop listening, those are all very good things and we should be doing those things if we wanna to get to know God, but that's not what Christianity is all about. I think Jesus is saying you can do all the right things and still miss out on knowing me. What Jesus says, I think he says what Christianity is all about is knowing God. So near the end of his life on earth, Jesus is hanging out with his um, best friends kind of right before he's gonna to go to the cross the night before and he's hanging out with them and here's one of the last things he says, and I think we should pay attention because of that. Here's what he says. He says in John 17, three, that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus is saying it all right there. He's making it very, very clear that life, that eternal life is all about knowing God. It's not all about these other things, but here's the thing, it's all about knowing God, but the one way that we can begin to know God is by placing our faith in Christ as the Messiah, as our savior. By placing our faith in Christ, we can begin to know God, the relationship with him can be healed. Um, Peter, in 1 Peter 3.18, he writes this. He says that, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. The purpose of Christmas, the purpose of Jesus coming, why he came, why he did everything he did, why he went to the, to the cross, was that he might bring us back into relationship with God, the relationship we were created for. I think that most of us watching today, most of us here today, I don't think we would necessarily align ourselves with Herod. We wouldn't say that we hate God, but I don't know if we necessarily love him either. We're not his enemies, but we really don't wanna invest the time to get to know him either. I think a lot like the religious leaders, a lot of times we're somewhere in the middle and we, we might even say that God or Christianity has a place in our lives, but I think if that's the case, if we're saying, God, yeah, you got a, you've got a little place in my life, I think we're maybe missing the big picture of what Christianity is all about, just like the religious leaders missed it some 2,000 years ago. To help us understand this a little better, I brought something with me today. Um, over here, I got a dresser. Over here, there we go. Uh, I got a dresser over here today. Um, and when, when I think about a dresser, when I think about this dresser, um, I think about 
life and what our life looks like. And so if you wanna think about the dresser, the actual frame of it, not the drawers, I would say that that's like our life. This dresser is like our life and that would make all the drawers, the things in our life that make up who we are or maybe even like our priorities in life. So for example, you might have like a work drawer or a family drawer or a school drawer. You could have all kinds of different drawers of the things that make up who you are. And so there are some of us um, who in the kind of dresser of our life, you don't even have a God drawer. That's okay, you might not have a God drawer. Um, there are some of us that I think we have a God drawer, but maybe it's not like near the top. It's maybe at the bottom or somewhere in the middle that God has a place in our lives, not a big part, uh, but a part nonetheless. There are some of us who, who even have, you know, a God drawer is our top drawer. It's our, our religion drawer, our Christianity drawer, our church drawer is our top drawer. You know, and we, we don't miss church. And even since quarantine, we watched every week and we make it a really big priority and, and we're doing kind of trying to do all the right things. And I think that the religious leaders, I think they would have had God in their top drawer too, but they still missed it. And I think that's because I don't, I don't think God wants to necessarily just be our top drawer. He doesn't wanna be the one thing that might be more important than the other things in our life. I think that God wants to be our life. He wants to be our whole life. I think that God wants to be the frame that is the dresser. He wants to be the dresser, the thing that is our life that all other things in our life are framed by. Paul in uh, Galatians chapter two he writes this, I think it'll help us understand. Galatians 2, chapter 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. What Paul is saying here is that his, his dresser is no longer his own. It's not his dresser. It's not the dresser of Paul that God is the top drawer. He's saying it's no longer me that lives. It is God that lives in me. It is Jesus that lives in me. Jesus is the dresser that which all other things in my life are framed by. He keeps saying in that verse uh, that the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here's the thing. I, I think that that dresser really helps me picture this idea that, that we can be like the religious leaders. We can miss out on the Messiah. We can miss out on the big picture of what Christianity is all about. We can miss out um, by knowing the word of God and not knowing the God of the word. So if that's the case, the next logical question becomes, how do we get to know the word? How do we get to know the God of the word? How do we get to know the God of the word? It's really pretty simple. We do this the same way that we get to know anyone else. You spend time with him. You talk with him. You listen to him. What this looks like is, is reading the Bible and spending time in prayer. And now I know what you're thinking, but wait a minute, uh, Arch, you just said that we can know the word of God, we can spend time in the Bible, we can do all those right things and, and still miss it, still not get it, still not know the God of the word. And while that's true, that doesn't mean that we don't do those things. Reading the Bible, spending time in prayer, spending time with God, what it means is that we need to think properly about those things. So the, there's a quote from A.W. Tozer um, in his book, The Pursuit of God, that I wanna share. He says this, he said that the Bible is not an end in itself, 
but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God that they may enter into him, that they may delight in his presence, that they may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of their hearts. That guy's got a way with words. What he's saying is that the Bible is not the, the end. The, 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 the doing the things is not what Christianity is all about. It's not all about being able to ace Bible trivia quizzes. It's not all about knowing that. The Bible and doing all these right things and praying and, and all these kind of things is all about a means to getting to know God better. It's kind of the beginning of the journey, if you will. So the first thing we need to do to get to know the God of the word better is by spending time with him. The second thing is by spending time with others that are getting to know God. At the Ridge, we really believe that life change happens best in community. So if you really wanna get to know the God of the word, I encourage you, connect with other people that are doing the same thing. I know it'll make all the difference. I know that because I, I think as I read through this text and I go through this, I really resonate a lot with these religious leaders. I grew up in a Christian home. I was in church, I was in Sunday school, I, I followed the rules, I, I did all the right things, but something was still missing. I didn't know God, and it wasn't until I realized, like Paul said in Galatians, that the Son of God loved me, and he gave himself for me. That, that once I accepted and placed my faith in Jesus and, and took that as the starting point, and I began to try and get to know the God of the Word after that, that everything changed. When I started really doing that, really reading the Bible with the purpose of wanting to get to know God better and really spending time with other believers, hoping that they would push me to do that, hoping that they would push me to get to know God better, that everything changed in my life. It was a dramatic transformation. In some ways, it felt almost overnight. I left school the spring of my 10th grade year as one person and I came back in August of my junior year as a whole different person. It totally changed my life. And here's the thing is that we have an opportunity right now. Right now during this Christmas season, I think might be a better time than any during the rest of the year to begin to get to know the God of the word. To stop, to kneel at his side at the foot of the cross to see his love for you, how he gave himself up for you, to accept that, to realize that's the only way that we can be healed from our brokenness, the only way that we can be made right with God again is accepting what Jesus has done and to know that and to begin to get to know the God of the word. I think it will make all the difference. Don't miss this opportunity. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful. Grateful, God, that, that right when things get messed up, in, in, in the beginning with Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden and everything goes wrong, and Lord God, you make a way. You promise that one day coming, someone, there will be a Messiah, a Savior who comes into this world, who takes on that sin and the brokenness for us, who takes our place and our punishment and what we deserve so that we can take his place, being heirs, being children of yours, being back in a right relationship with you. We thank you for this season where we celebrate the coming of that Messiah, Jesus. 
We ask, Lord, that you don't let this season pass by without us seriously taking a look at who Jesus is, what he did for us, and how he opens the door for us to get to know God intimately, deep, deeply, know your sweet love. We thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for this time today. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.